because people aren't lovely. They're pain in the butt, uh, you know, and frankly, why, why do I care about you at all? Welcome everyone to the Faith Recovery Podcast, where three failed pastors, Alex, Kent, and Nathan. Hi. Hey, we're all here. Are seeking to recover from bad ideas about God and trying to help other people recover from bad ideas about God and the Christian life and recover the true faith of the true gospel. Um, that's an ambitious uh, intention. It really is, yeah. You and, said true there a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and what is truth? We're in a series called like Faith it. That Works, and we're actually re-recording an episode you don't have to tell them that. Point that somewhere else. That's right. Where we aim to, this is another ambition, ambitious statement. Yeah, we mean, posit the need, uh, the human need to worship. We'll posit it. I, I think, um, I, I feel like we need to maybe start by defining worship. That's right. Yeah. Okay. I, that's a great insight, Alex, because. This isn't our first rodeo, and by rodeo, <laughs> I mean attempt at this episode. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah. What is a what is worship? Well, I mean, there's like the ceremonial religious activity that you see going on all around the world, where whether it's Hindu, Buddhist, mm -hmm. Catholic, Protestant, people are going to worship services, performing certain rituals. I think it can take on different. Um, meanings or implications depending on the culture depending on the particular religion depending on a lot of things you know so gr growing up in you know white suburban america you know evangelical america for me when somebody says worship what tends to come to mind is you know uh at, you know being at church having a band on the stage doing worship music Singing. Which, singing, yeah, mm -hmm. or, and people singing along to, to songs. Mm -hmm. But is that what we're talking about? Doesn't seem to be, since lots of religions around the world don't include singing. It actually, probably pretty unique feature of the Christian religion. I'm, I'm sure there are, I think that uh, there's some songs, apparently, in the Jewish faith. I mean, we get a lot of our songs from... Mm -hmm. Psalms, um, and so, but Islam, I think you guys know, maybe know more than I do about it, but I think they, don't they prohibit music in a lot of settings? That, uh, I mean, there's the minaret, there's the song that plays over the loudspeakers and that's a, that's musical, but I, yeah. I'm not, I'm not familiar with a strong worship or a musical tradition. So some traditions, we, we, maybe we have singing and a performance live band. Um, I think that is dis probably distinctly American or at least Western European in Christianity, but, you know, tra having traveled in Southeast Asia, worship, um, there looks very different. You know, I've, I've been to some of the, um, the Buddhist countries and often a, a lot of the local, um, you know, versions of Buddhism, they, they, they mix spirit, spirit in there and some other things and so you'll see lots of shrines shrines to particular deities or spirits and their worship looks very much like um you know putting incense out saying saying a prayer you know uh, either for uh towards an ancestor for a blessing or towards uh, some type of ceremonial spirit and so that kind of worship looks different maybe more like 
prayer, more like a, a sort of sacrifice almost in some cases, putting gifts on the, you know, the shrine for these, these spirits. Yeah. And I, I think that probably gets to the, to quote Matt Redman, heart of worship. Mm, oh mm. yeah. <laughs> but uh, are we coming back to the heart of worship? Something it's all about, it's all about you, you, not you kid, you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Who? Yeah, that's the question, isn't it? But worship, as we understand it, as you've mentioned, Alex, it seems to be all about us, but maybe that's just my cynicism. Um, I, I have a beef when people clap at the end of a song in church. I'm just like, are we, who are we clapping for? Uh, is it this instinct that we have that if you go and hear live music and when the song is over, you clap and. So there's this, I don't know if people are confused as to why they're there or if they're being polite, um, or if they're clapping for God, I, I don't know where this comes from, but it seems that it, it seems to speak to some confusion about who the audience is, who the, whether it's a performance and all of that. But, uh, anyway, generally worship seems to be about veneration. Um, it seems to be about honoring, um, and, uh, the idea of it, of assigning worth. So we talked about worship as this contracted word it's worth ship. And, and so it's ascribing worth. Yeah. Yeah. Through, through whatever means. And so how do we do that? Um, and what are the origins of, of that practice? Why does it seem to be something that occurs most places around the world? I think you could probably anthropologically, you could find a few tribes out there that have no, no concept of, of gods or of worship. Maybe they just accept phenomena as they come. I don't know, but for the most part, it seems to be an inclination. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I want to go back to something. You kind of alluded to a little bit earlier there in a, in a side comment. Um, there's, there seems to be a type of worship that can often, it can masquerade as, um, you know, maybe, maybe I'm acting like I'm giving worth to, you know, this worth ship, you know, to this deity, this leader, this, whoever it is. But, um, I think the underlying uh, implication is that maybe I'm really just doing this to get some benefit out of it, you know? And so I, I can, I can see that in a, a lot of the, um, prayers that people will typically give, you know, or the sacrifices you know, or the sacrifices that, you know, maybe certain cultures give, it's very much a, um, at times appeasement, I'm doing this so that I can uh, get merit. You know, I think, I think of the, uh, you know, the, the word in Thailand was literally tambun, which means to make merit. It's oh. like you're, you're making wow. a deposit in the merit bank, <laughs> right? Yeah. Because you're going to make a withdrawal later on, right? Sure. You know, maybe you don't know how that's going to work, but if you, Hey, if I, if I make merit to this spirit or this deity, um, you know, then 
someday I'll be able to ask something back and get something in return. So it's very much a like quid pro quo. Crypto. Hmm. You're almost mining Bitcoin. Spiritual by, Bitcoin. It is. Hmm. Yeah. By, by, by expending resources, even if it's just time into a system, whether it's contrived or, or whatever, but the, the idea is, is that the more that you invest into this system, the more you're mining spiritual value to be traded later for material. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yes. I, I want to call that out because I, I think for a lot of people, maybe once again, that is a notion of what worship or prayer is even about. It's like, well, I, I'm, I'm doing this, but maybe, you know, I'm doing this because I, I, at some point want to get something back out of it. Mm -hmm. And is, and, and, and is that worship? Or is that just manipulation? We're just trying to get God to do something that we need him to do. Yeah, it's just a spiritual currency and a spiritual influence. Yeah, and the Old Testament in the frequent, almost incessant um, indictments against idolatry, it's spoken of as turning a relationship into a transaction, a.k.a. prostitution. Mm -hmm. So God is super offended by overtures of love in exchange for material reward uh, that that's offensive to him. And it, it, at least as he's presented in, especially the Old Testament, and yet this system seems to have been understood among the surrounding cultures, which is why there's this vigilance about keeping those elements out of, of Yahweh worship is that if they would not turn it into this prostitution, adultery, whatever uh, kind of sexual or relational uh, metaphor that we might assign to it. And then, you know, you have in the, in the Song of, of Solomon, there's this kind of ode to love. And it says, it says, if somebody gave everything they had for love, it would be utterly scorned. That too. That to try to buy love is, is to cheapen it and um, that the only right response to love is love. And so I, I think that in spirituality, uh, there is a relational aspect and, and that God means to have a relationship with us. He means to have a, an intimate relationship with us in, in many ways. But, but then there is this uh, notion of worship that is kind of its own thing. And it, and it does have to be pure, it has to be rooted in the identity of the object of our worship, the nature of that. So if I, you know, say you go and you, you slaughter a goat and you bring its body parts and you put it on an altar and you burn it to your God and you expect to have one goat's worth of favor back, then that's a transactional approach, isn't it? But if you do that. So, you know, the Old Testament has all of these sacrifices. They're not all sin offerings. Sin offering was just one of, of many. There's sin offerings, guilt offering, burnt offering, fellowship offering. Most of these offerings, and by most, I mean like 60%, uh, had to do with just simply assigning worth to God to express an expression of, of devotion, of adoration, rather than an attempt to uh, convince him or to, um, even to prevent his wrath. And a lot of that, you'd mentioned the word appeasement, Alex, 
a lot of a lot of religion around the world is appeasement that there there's this understanding and and uh and and i think a lot of critics of religion would point to this that there's this understanding that you know circumstances are beyond our control especially for pre-modern people and that religion is an attempt to account for those to somehow have friends in high places or or whatever but that's not i wouldn't say that's worship per se that so yeah religion is a feature around the world but worship, I think, also exists out there, and it may not always be with a god, even. What inspires, say, a man to buy a shiny rock for a woman? Is it, you know, I thought you would need this shiny rock in case you needed to cut out of a glass prison. A very expensive shiny rock. Right, Spend yeah. a lot of money. Right. I, I hear this is the hardest surface on the planet. If you're ever trapped in a glass prison or if you need to cut any really hard materials, this shiny rock will help you. Mm hmm that's a good example of ascribing worth it is. to this woman. Right. So you're, you're giving her something. She's not going to use it for something else. Um, you know, ideally, this isn't a quid pro quo arrangement. <laughs> we hope not. <laughs> right. right. That, that, that becomes something else, right? That, that, that immediately changes the relationship if it were. But that there is kind of this releasing of something of high value, of intrinsic value, not utilitarian value even. And that, that has a purpose. To give, you know, to give a woman a diamond is to do what? To say, you know, not that you are worth precisely two carrots and diamonds to me, but that I, this is a token of the worth that I ascribe to you. We say that's fair. Yeah. And maybe that more accurately represents this kind of uh, inherent need that we have to ascribe worth. You know, yeah. I think sometimes we use the word worship and it gets kind of ambiguous. So it's good that, that we, <laughs> you know, define these things on the outset. Cause I think, you know, I think we've talked about some misguided versions of worship that are very common to world religions and even at Christianity sometimes you hear this desire to appease, you know, appease or to pay into some kind of spiritual um, bank, you know, in order to make a withdrawal later with what, whatever the deity is. And that, that makes sense because we see that in our human structures all the time, you know, th that in human society, there, there's always a dynamic of trying to buy or broker power and influence uh, within the leaders, within those who hold, hold sway. And so it, it seems very natural you know, as humans, you know, as a species, whatever you want to call it, that, that, that we could project that same, uh, way of thinking onto a deity or the ultimate, you know, leader or, or, uh, power, you know, in that same way. But I think what we're saying is that that underlying, the underlying, um, thought there is that's misguided to right. bring that to who we say God is the God of, you know, of the Bible and say that we can somehow buy or gain influence through doing these things, making merit or <laughs> right. bringing the right sacrifice or saying the right prayers or singing the right songs. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's, it's compounded. So we're really talking about a relationship and one that in, involves love, adoration, um, and it is an imbalanced relationship. It is an inequitable relationship. If you can imagine, say, 
um, a very, a woman from a very poor background is, you know, dating Elon Musk or something kind of like recently with Grimes and Elon Musk and, and the, the relationship is, is fraught from the beginning because of the resources that one has to bring that the other one doesn't. And, and so that there's an inherent difficulty, I think, when there's inequity, uh, when people say marry out of their class. And when we talk about religion, we're talking about marrying out of our existential nature, uh, marrying into the metaphysical. Um, and so th that it's fraught. How does God relate to us? How do we relate to him? How can there be pure adoration, devotion when he has nothing to gain from us and we have everything to gain from him that we owe him our very life. And so that's fraught. Uh, we get these aberrations, uh, at least from a biblical standpoint of kind of this quid pro quo, this attempt, like we're saying to mine spiritual Bitcoin, um, and, or to, to gain ourselves clemency for particular failures. I mean, we're obviously confronting a being who is supposedly perfect, um, in, in however you may conceive of that. So, you know, it, if you could imagine being in a marriage with somebody who never made a mistake and who always knew the right thing to do, <laughs> you know, you, you wouldn't, it wouldn't go well. Uh, you know, you would just constantly be failing. Um, and then that person would be constantly painfully aware of your failures. And then how do you compensate for that? How do you settle the score? It just all gets to be very difficult. Um, that, that inequity becomes a problem, which is why people come up with things. Religion even the word religion is to reconnect from, you know, the Latin kind of religiere or something. And so it's this notion to, to try to build a ligature between the, the lowly creature and the transcendent creator. Hmm. Um, and how do we build this ligature? Yeah. So isn't it interesting though, that sociologically, you know, you can, <laughs> every culture and society has had what would seem to be some form of religion and that inherent in, in the idea of religion is this, um, sense that we have a broken relationship that needs to be, um, mended since, you know, appeased, we have to appease something. There's something wrong. There's a broken trust, bro broken relationship. And that seems to be inherent, you know, within this, this concept, that you know, we see over many, many cultures throughout history. Yeah. And, and we have this tendency, it just kind of occurs to me as I think about Eastern religion, we have a tendency to want to create gods. Um, and I'm not trying to cast dispersions on other religions and stuff. I'm, I'm just thinking of somebody like the Buddha. So an exceptional human being, apparently, but when he dies and, and you know, passes into the, into the shades of, of history in the past, oh, he becomes a deity. Yeah, even though, even though he explicitly says, do not worship me. Right. Right. He says, just follow my example. Yet we see, you know, there's, there's like a pure form of Buddhism, <laughs> you know, which would be to just take this as a mere philosophy. And I, I, I think that's a popular concept. But what we see in actual, how it actually applies throughout cultures, throughout, um, the Buddhist, you know, countries that we know is that when you get down to it, 
it always gets mixed up with something else. It, it's uh, ancestor worship, a worship of uh, nature, spirits within nature, other types of spiritualism, uh, working in pantheons of gods from Hinduism, you know, that never were part of Buddhism. You know, it, it's just interesting how um, you take something that was meant to be a philosophy that you could just apply and people will still tend to go out and reach out for this this sense of i need to have this connection with this other personhood almost you know there's something there so we're arguing for the need the, the human need to worship yeah and the, and the human need to place somebody on a pedestal to have uh, an aspirational presence if you will i i, I would call it that 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 it's not enough for most people in spite of what buddha himself taught it wasn't enough for them to just simply follow his philosophy but that they needed to turn him into an object of worship that mm. there's something that the drive was so strong that it defied his very teachings yeah and i you know this is an aside but i i would argue what's underlying that is the human need to feel like we're not alone. Right. Or that we're not merely apes. <laughs> or a bunch of apes. It's like, right. I, I can look around the, the room here and say, well, I know I'm not alone. The two of you are sitting here with me. But there, there seems to be this sense within um, people throughout history, throughout culture, that um, I need to know that I'm not alone on an existential basis. <laughs> right, right, right. That that kind of existential loneliness that comes in, you know, as soon as we begin to deny these things, um, an existential dread. Perhaps it's an attempt to fight that. I, it it almost seems that ancestor worship and um, things like, you know, turning the Buddha into a god or or whatever is is our projecting our own desire toward deification, toward immortality. Perhaps that's a part of it. Um, perhaps by creating a, a system of, of honor, we are expressing a need to rise above the, just the din and the, the mortal coil. Perhaps teachings like Dharma and karma and reincarnation and stuff like that are all holding out a hope of somehow eventually meriting a transcendent existence beyond what here seems futile and and monotonous. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I think we're talking about all this in, in some sense. Uh, I don't think we're saying anything new, you know, that for people that have read up on these topics, I could think of, you know, a lot of well-read sociologists, atheists, you know, humanists that would say, okay, well this, yeah, yeah we, we've all, we've all read these studies. Human society. Yeah. This is the future of history. human society, but, um, so what? Right. <laughs> sure. Sure. Well, it, you know, to me, it's more, it's more understand. It's understandable to have an appeasement mentality. Uh, and Freud's scenario, the guy on the Island, the volcanoes erupting, he creates an, a, a volcano God, he throws a virgin into it or whatever it is. And, and so a religion is born. All of that sounds really plausible to me. Um, and, and even this idea of, of ancestor worship, that all seems somewhat plausible from a purely naturalistic plain um what what i think needs accounting for is this kind of a 
an aspiration or a longing um, to to have this transcendent this transcendence that it's not just the same thing but longer <laughs> you know but but this notion of of holiness that the word holy ought to only occur in in a religious setting because it it's the word that emerges after we run out of adjectives that the adjectives that we have are of a necessity to describe our phenomena to describe the um, various objects and people around us and yet beyond those and in defiance to those that there's this word holy so which means what right <laughs> yeah it, it yeah. means something holy what does other. it mean for us right yeah uh w-h-o-l-l-y something holy other holy other Perhaps, yeah. Is, is one of the sort of definitions of holiness. Right. So right. That, that's that's interesting. You know, so that we should be able to see that within cultures, right? Is this sense sure. that there has to be something other than what we can see, taste, feel, touch. Yeah. And the human need to, we're, I think we're positing that the human need to worship is a human need to worship that which is wholly other. Right. Right. That which is transcendent would be a more... Uh, you know, pedestrian word. I think transcendent and holy are, are similar. It's just that um, holy has an analog in how we behave toward that which is tr transcendent. So God in Leviticus, uh, and again, you know, in the New Testament, he says, be holy because I'm holy. So we can't be holy as God is holy, but we can be holy because he's holy. That there is this response to be set apart to be distinct from the drift of human society, the necessities of, of life that uh, the, uh, I guess not necessities, but the, the exigencies, the, the urgencies that are placed upon us and our reaction to them tend to dehumanize us in some ways. That if we are just living to survive, then we are becoming less um, less spiritual, less transcendent, more animal and pedestrian and, and all of that. And so that, that religion seems to be an attempt to rise out of that animal side of ourselves, but why, um, and you know, why, why do we ever do that? That, that a lot of what happens in religion, let's say you kill an animal and you burn it up. That's not a survival. That's not a very good survival strategy. Um, okay. It doesn't seem to accomplish anything. You mean, it doesn't right. seem very utilitarian. Right. Um, why, like would, why would ring. we do such a thing? Yeah. Why would you burn that perfectly good food? Exactly. Uh -huh. <laughs> exactly. Why would you spend a thousand, two, three, four, five thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars on this rock exactly. to put on a woman's finger? Right. Right. It could really only just impede any utilitarian value, you know, that might get in the way, might hang on something, um, but certainly won't advance the quality of her life in any way. Um, and so I, I think that we have this, this need to worship. Let's just maybe do a little recap. We, it seems that around the world, we have a need to ascribe worth to something, someone out there that that becomes easily polluted by the exigencies of life and our own 
fallenness or sulliedness that it begins to become uh, this transactional kind of a polluted thing in almost every circumstance. Um, but I, I, I would say that, and, and because the title of the series is a faith that works, I, I think that what God has done in the gospel, and I'm, I'm speaking as someone who I have a very strong bias that this is the truth. Uh, but let me point out some of the weaknesses of the inclination to worship. Okay. So here's a, here's a major weakness of the inclination to worship. It is often an undue burden on people who already have too much to do. Okay. So if I have to get, I, I just saw a, a statistic. This was an article in 2018. If anybody wants to look it up, um, that, uh, the New York times came out and it said that it will currently at the, at the number number based on the number of Muslims in the world, 1.8 billion. And the number of people at max capacity who can do the Hajj every year, 3 million, which they are no longer doing because people were being trampled. They cut it down in half. But if you could get 3 million people to the Hajj every year, and if the current number of Muslims on the planet were immortal and were not reproducing, that it would take 581 years to get every Muslim to the Hajj. This is one of the five pillars of Islam. This is not something like, I'd really like to see Disney World someday. I mean, this is something you kind of have you to gotta do. You got to do it. Right. Mm -hmm. But if, if, even if every person right now immediately had all of the resources they needed to get to the Hodge, that just the, to account for the numbers in that space would take 581 years to get all the Muslims on alive on earth today through the Hodge. So there's, there's something about that. I mean, doing the Hodge, you may feel like it's going to gain you favor or maybe insight. One of the reasons people go to worship isn't, isn't for material, um, remuneration, but it is for spiritual remuneration that there is a, a watering of the soul that seems to come with, or at least be perceived by those who offer genuine worship, that there is a, some sort of an internal longing. And it, you see it in the Psalms where the Psalmist says, I'm, I'm panting for you. I thirst for you. When can I go and be in your house and see your beauty and offer you worship? So the psalmist isn't saying, you know, I'm going to go and, and get some Bitcoin. I, he's saying, I, I'm thirsty for your presence, your grace. I'm, I'm longing to feel your pleasure. When can I go and be in your presence? When can I go and worship my God? I'm thirsting, you know, I'm like a deer panting. And so is that one of the weaknesses of worship? Yes, it is. Okay. It is. And, and, and again, I guess this is somewhat helpful, uh, for me in that I'm teaching through the book of John and in John chapter four, uh, I don't know if you guys ever noticed. So the woman at the well story, Jesus goes, he says, give me a drink. The woman says, how could you ask me for a drink? You're a Jew, blah, blah, blah. Okay. And, and then he, they get in this conversation about worship and she says that you Jews say, you know, the, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain. You're Jew, you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place which you have to worship and all this. And how do we get over to this conversation about worship out of, out of this, you know, can I buy you a drink meeting? Um, and it, it's about worship all the way through that the well, and that the access is, is a, is a figure and a metaphor. The well is deep and you have nothing to draw with. She says to Jesus that you, you are dependent on me. I have the vessel you don't. And so for somebody, a Samaritan who wanted to get a drink of what David was thirsting for, he couldn't get it. 
David's like, I'm going to, I'm going to drink at your house, but Samaritan's not allowed in. Who's keeping him out? The people with the vessels, <laughs> right? They're not letting him in. That, that he's not clean. He's not pure. He can't be uh, set aside, set apart enough. He's going to have to go through the whole proselytization thing. Even though he thinks he's descended from Jacob, he's not going to be let in. And, and so you get this, that where we create these systems of worship, or even where God creates a system of worship, as he did in the Old Testament, that there's always going to be um, a tendency toward corruption as the vessels are in the hands of human beings. And, and I mentioned this before, you know, the Catholic Church kind of took Christianity and reverted it to a priestly system where if you want to drink the blood of Christ and eat his body and you have to do that to go to heaven, then you have to come to us. Right. Mm -hmm. And that and there are people who are especially trained to handle it and they're going to, you know, do the incantation over it and it's going to be magically changed and all this. But but all of that, it creates this aperture where we can say who's in and who's out, who gets to experience God and who doesn't. And that's one of the weaknesses of worship is that it always has to take place in a special zone, a sacred space. It requires activities that are novel, that are not a part of ordinary life. Um, and, and John, throughout the Gospel of John, is critiquing worship as ceremony. If you notice in John 2, there at that wedding feast, there are these stone water jars that Jesus uses to turn the water into wine, right? Mm -hmm. And those water jars are there for purification. Well, stone water jars are heavy. Not only that, but producing them. Can you imagine chipping out of granite a vessel that can hold water? I mean, the time it would take to do that, to haul them around. But it was because in Leviticus chapter 11, water that was in a clay pot could become defiled by an unclean animal falling into it or whatever. Water in a cistern could not. And so they created portable cisterns to get around the law. So ceremony turns into this quaint kind of odd behavior, intentionally odd in the Levitical system, because it's like, I'm holy, so you be holy, right? The ordinary stuff you do every day isn't good enough because everybody does that every day. You need to be different. So don't eat pork. Don't eat shellfish. Don't wear two different kinds of clothing. Don't trim the corners of your beard. Don't boil a kid in its mother's milk. These all sound arbitrary to some degree. They are because they're ceremonially separating Israel from the rest of the nations that are, that had this quid pro quo relationship with their gods, but Israel's supposed to be different. There's a ceremonial difference that has to take place, but that's problematic because again, as populations grow, as um, the religion becomes cosmopolitan as opposed to regional, you can't have a cosmopolitan religion that has all of these, this cultural specificity, which is where you see a lot of, of just oppression and abuse. I mean, if you, if you preclude pork around the world, you go to China and say, okay, no Chinese people can ever eat pork again. What? <laughs> you know, people going to be going hungry, man. Cause those are some good food. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, I got nine piglets, a, a litter. That's a, that's some good food. Mm -hmm. Uh, and if you tell everybody they can't have pigs, it's people are going to starve. And so the, there is an oppressiveness that there is a heaviness of burdens that religion is burdensome. And that's a problem with it. The other problem is, is that because it's burdensome, we want something back out of it. Okay, I'm going to go and make my life harder for you. Now you need to make my life easier somewhere else. Well, we don't know that that's going to happen. Uh, and it becomes a quid pro quo relationship with God. Here's what I'm, here's what I think Jesus was saying in John 4. He's saying the time is coming and is now come when you won't worship the Father 
on this mountain or in Jerusalem. There's no, no pilgrimage needed. And, and if you're not worshiping the Father in Jerusalem, then there's no ceremony needed. And that the, the repeated refrain in John is, is that, that this is for the world, not Israel, not just Israel. Mm-hmm. That, that, that this has application to everybody, and what they're called to do is believe. And that in believing, giving a thirsty person a cup of water is worship. That in a system of grace, that we acknowledge grace and, and we uh, celebrate grace by showing grace. And so it is, is necessarily inclusive. It's necessarily um, productive. And so now here we are. We are pushing back against the doldrum of survival. So let's say I have food for today and tomorrow and you don't have food for today. Now, a survival-based life would say, I'm going to keep what I have for tomorrow as well. And you need to go somewhere else. Okay. So that, that pure, pure survival, like exigency kind of life is I'm keeping my food for today and tomorrow. You need to leave. Uh, uh, say a religious life would say I'm keeping my food for today and tomorrow, but I'm giving 10% of it to a God and you're still going hungry. And I'm hoping to buy enough favor to get food for day three with my 10% of it. Okay. So that's a religious, that's a religious life, but you see how now it's a lose, lose because you go hungry and I have 10% less and I've entered into a quid pro quo with God. I'm, I'm investing that 10% a seed in the hope that I'll get, you know, a big return later. So there's no actual generosity. There's no actual righteousness. There's no actual worthship being ascribed to the God. I am the center of everything. Nothing has changed. But in this spirit and truth, Jesus says the time is coming when the father will have worshipers who are in spirit and truth. Here's the thing, because God has come as a human being through his Holy Spirit, and we are now his body. When I give to you, I give to him because he is in you. Previously in Psalm 50, God says, why are you bringing all the sacrifices? Do I drink the blood of bulls? You know, it's not that God, that, that was, that was about worship. It was about us reminding ourselves, here's what he's worth. But God's like, I'm not benefiting from this. And so it's not an actual gift to me in a ceremonial system. God, the gods, they don't benefit, you know? So I, I live in a graveyard and Buddhists uh, often will leave oranges and, you know, things like that on the graves of their dead relatives, but those oranges stay there until my kids decide to take them. Now, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, people go and, and you know, it, it's not just Buddhist rednecks do it. So, you know, I don't know how many 20-year-olds get to drink, you know, the dead people get a cans of beer. They never drink it. Uh, and, and so the, with this distance between the material realm and the spiritual realm, even if you have somebody out there and they're like, well, that's nice. He put a can of beer in my grave. You know, they don't get the benefit from it. But, but. In the incarnation, with God coming and being one of us, now everywhere we are kind to somebody in his name, he tastes it, it nourishes him, and now it is, that's why it is in spirit, because it is his spirit who is now in us, and that's why it is in truth, in that it's actuality, it's truth, not as opposed to falsehood, because the Old Testament religion wasn't falsehood. 
it's truth as opposed to simulation, as opposed to ceremony. You know, so you give the diamond ring to your wife that, that doesn't really benefit her, but it is a ceremonial statement, right? It, 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 it has um, some sort of a symbolic meaning and, and it stands for your intentions throughout life. But the real, if you just give somebody a diamond ring and then you treat them like garbage every day after that, the ring means nothing. Or if you just walk up to a random person on the street and give them a diamond ring. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and they say, you just, you just say, I we're love married. you. We're married now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you just fall down and you say, I love you. <laughs> Which gets back to Jesus saying, greater love hath no one than this than to lay down his life for random strangers. No. Than to lay down his life for his friends. That, that it is in the context of a relationship that if I lay down my life for a random stranger, it's still about me. It's about me entertaining this hero notion uh -huh. and this altruism. If I lay down my life for my friends, it's because the space in between us is sacred. And I am demonstrating the value that God has through my love for you. But, uh, but it is through that maintaining of that fellowship and that relationship. And so humans want to worship worship is problematic i see that the that the gospel of christ that the beauty of the incarnation the fact that we are his body and we are his bride it makes all of this worship it solves it it solves the problems that are inherent in our drive to worship hmm. so you're arguing for a definition of worship that it doesn't look a description of worship that doesn't look very religious or ceremonial. Right. But it looks relational. Yes. Defined by love. Yes. Well, and defined by, by giving of oneself to others. It's right. not a sacrificial giving. That's not a literal <laughs> sacrifice and, and that God doesn't need it. What, what God desires is that we are, that our worship to him is actually seen in, in giving sacrifices towards, uh, the people that are around us. Exactly. How, do you, how does this definition of worship escape the, uh, response, uh, which would say from the, say from the humanist that would say, yeah, exactly. You don't need, you don't need, you don't need a, uh, you don't need, it, you don't need to be worshiping a God you just need to be loving one another. Because people aren't lovely. They're pain in the butt, uh, you know, and frankly, why, why do I care about you at all? If, if it comes down to, I might not eat tomorrow if I feed you today, that there has to be a sacrificial element. Um, because I, at the end of the day, we're really all in a standoff. Um, and I'm, I can't fully commit to you. I can't pour myself out for you because I cannot count on the possibility that you will reciprocate. And if you mm -hmm. don't reciprocate, I could be destroyed. Mm -hmm. I could be wrecked and ruined. And, and if you do that with enough people, you will realize that most people won't mm -hmm. reciprocate in kind, or at least you won't perceive that they have reciprocated in kind. They may feel that they have, but your interpretation of it. And, and so it's immediately fraught that, that if it's purely horizontal, um, I'm not going to give to somebody just like God this, this relationship between us and God is so inequitable that it's immediately fraught. So is the relationship between people. 
The people who need my help the most can do the least for me. Why would I keep giving to them? And if I do, I mean, at least I want them to acknowledge I'm their savior. Right? I want them to at least be like, we would have died if it weren't for you. And here's a monument we built. Now I'm God. Again, it gets to, you know, it, it, it starts to devolve again. That, that there has to be the God who is transcendent, who is worthy, who is inherently worthy, who doesn't have to demonstrate his worth for this all to really work so that we don't end up comparing our relative investments into the relationship so that we don't measure people's worth or potential in our willingness to help them, but we can base it on their need. We love because he first loved us. Yeah, that's the exact words I was going to say. Implicit in this is not just some, you know, humanist sense that, well, if we just all gave to one another, then we'd all have what we need. Uh, the gospel is that this is all true because God demonstrated it first. Mm -hmm. He yeah. laid down his life for his friends, and that became the catalyst for them to see that there is another way of life possible than what we see through purely humanistic society. Right. But he didn't do it purely out, out of altruism because he was counting on God and you have to have God in the mix. The, 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 the resurrection was the seal of approval. <laughs> right. Right. And this isn't quid pro quo. It is a belief in God's justice. Ultimately, Jesus wasn't saying, I want you to repay my goodness. Jesus was saying, I will surrender to injustice knowing that you are just and that you will rectify what is unjust. That was the sort of faith that Jesus had. And so we can, if, if we go into the world trying to make it a fair place, we will become an iron fisted oppressor, you know, but if we go into the world with a confidence in a God of justice and love, we, we, we can participate. We can actually, um, cause justice to, to take place out there because we just get to be that one who crossed the line, who will make the difference, expecting not necessarily the other person to reciprocate or for the, the ledger to balance every time, but knowing that there is a just God out there in the universe. And so Jesus is, he is conferring that kind of a faith onto us, which enables us to love. I just want to, I told you about this, Kent, but it really comes to mind. Speaking of the book of John. John chapter one, there's this famous dialogue between Jesus and Peter. Jesus is raised from the dead. They, um, Peter was out fishing all night, right? Jesus has cooked breakfast and everybody's on the shore now. And um, chapter 21, 21, John yeah. 21. Mm -hmm. And Jesus turns to Peter. He says, Peter, son of John, do you love me more than these? And in the Greek, it's agapos, right? Agape is this unconditional love, this thing that is needed in the world, right? Um, and Peter turns to Jesus and he says, I phileo you, Lord. And he says, well, feed my sheep, right? So Jesus says, do you, do you agape me? And Peter says, I phileo you. Phileo has to do with more of this friendship love, right? This affection, kind of a, kind of a love. And, and Jesus turns to him again and says, Simon, son of John, agapos me, do you, you agape me? And, and Peter says, I, I, I phileo you, Lord. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and he says, well, then feed my or tend my lambs. And, and a little bit later says, Simon, son of John, phileos may. So he brings it down. He, he says, I'm not asking about agape anymore. I'm just asking, do you love me? And Peter's like, I already said this twice, man. This is the third time. You know, all things, you know, I love you. I phileo you. 
And he says, well, then feed my sheep. Right. And, and it occurred to me that I, a lot of times uh, people will read into this, Peter's previous denial of Jesus and his attempt at redemption and all this, and maybe that's in there, but, but when you have someone as lovely as Jesus, you can't agape him because agape is unconditional love, right? How do you, how do you love somebody unconditionally when your heart is aflame? with affection for them. When you see in them nothing but virtue and everything you would ever want to be, how can you possibly give them this kind of love that is rooted in mercy and in pity? How do you give that to your superior? You can't, but he gives it to us. How do we reciprocate? Because love has to be reciprocated, right? Hmm. It's cheaper if you don't reciprocate it. I can't, I can't agape him. Mm -hmm. It's not possible by virtue of what he is, where he is, who he is. I can't agape him. All I can do is phileo him. And yet he's saying, but I agape you. Can you not agape me back? And he gives us the vehicle through which we can agape him. Peter didn't see it then. He says, feed my sheep. So we take what we're not capable of generating agape love. Attempts to do that will turn into self-congratulatory egoism. But what we can do is we can phileo him because he deserves it. And when he inserts our brother between us, he converts the phileo that he's already inspired in me. He converts it to agape as I phileo Jesus through an unworthy vessel. And now we are living in this reciprocal love relationship as my brother becomes the altar where I worship my God. And so the, the genius of God in the gospel is that as we worship God, we create societies of justice, peace, and love. And again, you got a better idea. Let me hear it. Mm. So today strikes me as a day when we really did seek to recover from bad ideas about God and recover uh, the true meaning of worship. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next time.